This is The Pick. And welcome to part two of our countdown of our picks from number 13 to 7. If you haven't listened to part one yet, go back and do that. And before we get started, just a reminder, it's your last chance to call The Pick line. So call 484-374-2534 and leave a message telling us some of your favorite albums. But right now, let's get rolling, starting with Kevin's number 10. So now to my top 10, starting with the sound that lifted R.E.M. to worldwide fame and stardom, all thanks to the mandolin. Nineteen ninety one, out of time. From REM, this is their biggest hit single, an accidental hit, really, a song with no legitimate chorus, and with the mandolin as the lead instrument. Losing My Religion was the lead single from Out of Time in February of ninety one. The song hit number four on the Billboard Hot One Hundred and topped both the alternative and mainstream rock charts. Out of Time, frankly, is a brilliant album. The sound of a band deliberately moving completely in the opposite direction in terms of its sound and its approach to songwriting, basically abandoning the sound that had defined it for 10 plus years and had prompted Rolling Stone to call them, quote, America's best rock and roll band on a magazine's cover in was released, guitar Peter Buck called Out of Time a record that might, quote, destroy R.E.M.'s career because of its bold new direction, marked by a process that saw band members crafting songs after they switched to new instruments. That's one of two songs on Out of Time with bassist Mike Mills providing lead vocals. Mills had said that on their more recent albums, the band felt like they were just starting to produce songs that basically sounded the same, and it was time to do something different. So he switched from bass to organ or keyboards for the songwriting process, while guitarist Buck explored the mandolin and their drummer, Bill Berry, actually switched to acoustic guitar, completely reconfiguring how they were writing songs. At the time, Buck said, we'd made a little money at this point and we wanted to do what the big boys were doing, to try to bring in a whole wide range of sounds and influences and approaches to writing, and you hear it all on this album. For the first time, R.E.M. was not producing a, quote, guitar album without of time. Far from it, actually. They actually included a nine-piece string section, used, uh, which was used on several tracks. And echoes of country music can actually be heard throughout, like on this song, Belong. In the weeks prior to its release, the band had stated publicly that they thought they had produced their finest work, and the public's response to Out of Time backed that up. Not only with record sales, they won multiple Grammys, 
but they started getting praise like this is an album that changed music in the 1990s. Also want to just include probably my favorite song on the album, although I'm very fond of Losing My Religion too. This is Me and Honey uh, with Michael Stipe on lead vocals, but uh, Kate Pearson of the B-52s on secondary lead vocals. Looking ugly, looking ugly at me. Knew what you were saying, you were saying to me. All right, so we'll get to the backstory here uh, in a second, but I need to verify something before I just possibly lose my shit here. Jeff, how many REM records do you have in, the, in your 100? Six? So the only one with five. It is five. And this isn't one of them. No. The entire 100, and you don't have this album in... Now, it's is that just you basically very saying, close call, very I'm, close call. I'm just going to be cool here, and I'm not going to pick the one no. that everyone loves, because I'm a cool, snobby R.E.M. fan, and blah, 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 blah. What, no. what, what the fuck? How come you no. don't have this in your 100? I just don't get it. It's not that, and you're wrong that everyone loves this. This is not considered... This is considered middle of the pack by almost everyone. Everyone being R.E.M. Except fans. you. Every, everyone <laughs> being R.E.M. Fans. No, I was kind of wondering because you have already talked about how great you think it is, and I did too. And then when I was compiling the list, so I listened to it again, and I realized, you know what? I have a lot, I have too many problems with this record, and problems. Uh, and I think that the five that I did pick, I definitely like better. Yeah. The only possibility with this one is that I was looking at the list and saying, okay, I have five REM albums. How am I going to distribute them? Yeah, right. And does that mean that the, the, my sixth favorite album, which this is not my sixth favorite album, <laughs> so. So I like Dead Letter Office better, which okay. is which is a kind of a weird compilation of uh, B-sides, but I like it better. All right. I wanted to kind of reconcile your love for it. Yeah. And so I started looking up, and I looked up at like 12 different uh, rankings by various publications. Critic. And one one uh, had it as number three. That's the highest. Everyone else had it middle of the pack or below halfway mark. Hmm. Let me just give you an example of some of the things people thought about it. <laughs> This is quickly turning into your pick sucks, Kevin. But even out of time's missteps still have an element of charm, even if listening to the tongue-in-cheek radio song now is an exploration to the furthest reaches of cringe. All right, you're going to read one of these, and then I'm going to tell you to stop this bullshit. The debate over shiny, happy people will rage forever, but the record also finds R.E.M. hitting dizzying heights with the irresistible losing my religion, the pop perfection of near wild heaven, and the awe-inspiring country feedback perhaps mm. the best song they ever recorded mm. which now yeah. you didn't you didn't pick that as one of your songs and no. i uh, i've never thought of country feedback as being one of the best songs they ever recorded but now i'm intrigued by it and so i like listening it to yeah. it more because yeah. many people say that's the best song on the album and that that was interesting to me that was nme by the way um and now a uh, stereo gum said there are points in out of time when it is nearly too painful to hear these one-time insurgents approach their unique sound so lamely you are shiny. giving so much shiny. credit to people who don't deserve it. I mean, shiny, I don't. No, no, well, you're taking this all off no, the rails I, here. I, 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 you, no, I, I, I just want to give a fuck what those people think. I know and, you don't. And then the audience shouldn't give a shit. I know you don't. I, I but I do. I, 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 I think it's these interesting. are not reasons because to add these lists, these albums to your list. No, no, shiny happy. I, this isn't the reason. I, I did, I did it before I read any of these lists. Shiny happy people is arguably the worst song the band's uh, entire catalog. Then there is country feedback. One of the greatest songs they ever recorded. A palpable, if frustrating acknowledgement that the band is still capable of genius. And finally, a short quote from RachelMusic.com. This is the most bipolar album R.E.M. ever made. It has some ridiculously strong tracks like Country yeah. Feedback and Half a World Away. 
and then some real turds like Radio Fish Song okay. and Shiny Happy People. See, the whole thing with Radio Song is I was okay with it when it came out, but it did feel awkward and forced that they're just trying to latch on to the hip hop craze. Really? And yeah, I, I just I always had that uncomfortable feeling about it, and it never really worked that great as a song uh, for me. But I still would listen to it and would sing along with it. Mm. Um, Losing My Religion, no doubt. One of the greatest songs uh, of, in pop history, easily. And the song that I really love, uh, my favorite song in the album is Low. Uh, yeah, another one that tune. I was surprised that you didn't pick. I love Losing My Religion, I love Low, and I love Belong. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where it ended, though. So you don't so, buy the... So, you, by the way, I would say sixth is Reckoning, seventh is Dead Letter Office, and then this would be eighth. So you don't buy the, you don't buy the narrative that this was... Which is a quote, really, from a member of the band saying, we were making the same song over and over on albums like Doc and green and it was time to just abandon all that Peter Buck basically saying we were ready to we, we knew we were potentially throwing our career in the toilet if by making this because we were going to do all these things that we'd never done before but we'd made a little money and we felt like we were going to take charge of the direction we were going they insisted that Losing My Religion be the lead single despite you know it, it being led by a mandolin and the record company not wanting it but you're saying all that's bullshit no I don't think yeah, it's bullshit okay. I like this album I know you do that's the thing you're not getting I like it <laughs> well I was thrown off by that colossal waste of time of listening to all those blowhards <laughs> justify their existence as critics I mean it's just like I think you look see, at I, me I'm writing I can say something critical about a great album that makes me great oh boy <laughs> let's repeat that give me clicks yeah no, yeah I don't, yadda, I, don't yadda, I don't yadda. Uh, I, well first of all we, we've talked about critics you've quoted critics at least every other album well, we've covered just like you I was trying to support my art yeah exactly you know I'm gonna actually because we, because we got deep into this discussion I'm actually gonna link these on the website so people can look at these uh, rankings of RM albums because it's pretty don't waste your time pretty much everyone puts all of their post monster albums as their worst yeah albums like new adventures in hi-fi which I just never got into is right. also much more respected than I knew and Reckoning like was number one on a couple of lists which I've always liked but some people just think is is the actually the peak of R.E.M. but the fact that they also came out with Automatic for the People my second favorite record by them after this Out of Time was not the end of anything it absolutely was the album in which they became huge stars because of Losing My Religion and all the stuff you said uh, about uh, the band wanting to change and everything yes they did it they did it, but they made, you know then they made something like Shiny Happy People, which has always annoyed me. <laughs> yeah, apparently Peter Buck's the only one who doesn't get annoyed by that song. Well, I mean the band is yeah the band's embarrassed by it more or less. They Except for him. Yeah. Okay. He's publicly said no. I'm I actually like that song. I'm proud of it. But the other three apologize profusely for it. I want to be clear, the reason I read those quotes was that I was more or less taken aback by knowing that this was going to be in your top 10, and or top 13 at least. Now, it's, we've acknowledged it's your top 10th album of all time. I guess, what did I guess on it? Oh yeah, what did you guess? I guess it was going to be your number 9. Oh yeah, man, so, you're, so close. Look at you. I mean, again, because of the margin of error here, you're basically, you were spot on. Yeah. I mean, but the reason I did this is because I was trying to verify for myself, why do I not love this as much as Kevin? Uh, and I kind of wanted to look up, how do, what, did, what did critics think? And I was actually surprised. I thought it would be higher. 
on average than it was, but basically on average it's in the middle. It's, it's square in the middle, which means it's kind of considered their worst of their good albums. <laughs> the other, I think, element for me here was Document was the first REM album I really explored because we were playing the one I love on the on the radio station, and then you handed me a copy of Life Strips Magic too. Well, if you like this band, you got to hear this. That was the extent of it. I kind of turned away from REM. I really wasn't into Green that much, and I just remember also at a, being at a time in my life where I was finishing college that year and going out into, into the, the world for my first job. And this this album was kind of a companion to yeah. that too. So there's always a special quality for me there. Yeah, I mean we're just gonna. Sh- this, I mean this this is probably gonna mark the sharpest disagreement in this entire 100 because I'm just I'm just about to vomit with this whole like oh gee <laughs> let's do something chic and say something bad about a great album because that'll make us interesting whatever. <laughs> All right, so that's my number 10, the ever controversial and uh, show-stopping "Out of Time" by REM. Are you still mad at me? You're not mad at me though. No, I'm not. No, I'm I. I there was a moment where I was putting this together and I was like, wait a second. I, I literally went back to the website and I just, I like scrolled through the artwork that you've posted on the website. Like, I can't fucking believe this is not anywhere in the in the 100. I mean, just throw, throw it at 99 just to say, you know, hey, I, I don't personally like this, but it's great. So I'm not going to look like a buffoon and not put it in my 100. But I don't know. What the hell is this? Oh, this is your next album? Okay. Yes, Kevin, it's my next album. Okay. <laughs> With the first of what will be many unsettling loud noises, we launch into the dark corners of one man's psyche. No, I had this so much higher. Damn it. That man is Trent Reznor, the man behind Nine Inch Nails, and this is their second studio album, The Downward Spiral. It's my pick at number nine. This is the album's opening track, Mr. Self-Destruct, and in it we meet the album's protagonist, and the song's aggressive approach telegraphs the album's dark and angry tone. You know, one of the things I like is how it goes from really loud to really quiet parts, from screaming to whispers, usually abruptly and unexpectedly, and before you know it, it goes right back to loud again. Yeah, I had to take off my headphones for that part. And that's true not only within many tracks, but also between tracks. Track two is Piggy. And it starts with kind of a nightclub vibe. But already you're getting the idea this is going to be a dark and twisting journey. And track three really gets things ripping along as Reznor rages against religion and its hypocrisies. seems to be the case, Kevin, with many of the albums in my top 20. It is a concept album about the self-destruction of a man from the beginning of his downward spiral to his suicidal breaking point. Yeah, 
Reznor deals with religion, dehumanization, violence, disease, society, drugs, sex, and finally suicide. And although I didn't really catch the full story when it was blasting from my Acura Integra's car stereo in much of 1994, <laughs> I appreciated the soul-bearing rage Reznor committed himself to. Like other records I was loving in that period, Nirvana, Beastie Boys, Rage Against the Machine, Hole, Tool, it was balls out loud and unabashedly heavy. Like many of those artists, it was filled with angst. But I feel this album really delved the deepest into some of the themes that were driving the grunge of the 90s. Doesn't it make you feel better? The pigs have won tonight. They can all sleep soundly. And everything is alright. And with the fifth track, we get to Nine Inch Nails' biggest ever hit. If you can call a song whose chorus leads with I Wanna Fuck You Like an Animal a hit. I think you just did. This song is actually a meditation on self-hatred and obsession, but to Reznor's dismay, the song was widely misinterpreted as a lust anthem due to its chorus. I mentioned concept album, and indeed, The Downward Spiral was influenced by my number 14 pick, Pink Floyd's The Wall, which dealt similarly with themes of abuse, isolation, and mental instability, as well as other late 70s releases such as David Bowie's Low. And if you want to talk about being dark, get this, Kevin, Reznor moved into the house in which the Manson gang murdered Sharon Tate and recorded much of the album there. Damn. He moved out after recording was done in late 93, and the house was demolished soon after. That's commitment. Nine Inch Nails is probably the foremost industrial rock band, and Reznor experimented extensively with electronic manipulation of both instruments and vocals. The result is a unique album, and I mean that quite literally. There is really nothing else like this. The album is semi-autobiographical, and Reznor struggled with alcohol and drug use before, during, and after its release. Sometimes when you really catch the lyrics and realize the pain this guy was in, it almost feels like your enjoyment of this piece of art is exploitation. But we can rest easier now, that several years have passed, and Reznor cleaned himself up and is still releasing music and touring. Rather than a skinny goth kid of Downward Spiral, He's now a fairly muscular, middle-aged guy that found peace. He's also a prolific movie score producer with partner Atticus Russ, having worked on The Social Network, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and even Soul, the animated Pixar film. Not everything here is super heavy industrial. This is one of the standouts to me, the instrumental A Warm Place, coming just past the halfway mark, a moment of respite before the truly downward part of the spiral comes. But the album's best track is perhaps its quietest, the closing track, Hurt. I hurt myself today. There are really few songs I'm aware of uh, where the vocal performance is filled with this much emotion. Pain, sadness, anger, despair. Focus on the pain. All 
right, so here we go again. One of the best live shows I ever saw yeah. was Nine Inch Nails at Woodstock 1994. Me and my friends were uh, very close to the stage. They came out, and they were completely covered in mud, which, of course, a lot of the people in the, in the, in the audience were, too, because it yeah. had rained the night before. Right. But the story was they were headed to stage and not planning to do that at all. Right. But some, one of the guys just kind of jokingly threw mud on the other guy. And then they just got in a big fight with each other, a big scrapping fight. And they came out completely covered. And he, he had problems because it was getting into his eyes while he was singing. Oh, man. But they were so committed. They, they had a fairly violent performance. Not uh, Of course. Like they, would, they, they had like the keyboard on a swinging, swinging arm that would just spin like he would just play it. And then he would throw it. And it would just swing around and slam against the speakers. And, oh, my God. I mean, they were just like so... Uh, committed to their performance and it was amazing and they actually won a Grammy for that performance for a live performance for best live metal performance wow. yeah um, Entertainment Weekly commented about the band at Woodstock's performance they said Reznor unstrings rock to its horrifying melodramatic core an experience as draining as it is exhilarating wow this song uh, Hurt was also covered by Johnny Cash oh yeah very late in his career and this is very respected as one of his best songs absolutely yeah. absolutely great story about him being inspired by this Reznor recording and, and wanting to record it for himself. Yeah. In the in the final months, I think of his life, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, and I talked a lot about this because I really love this album. I know you thought it was going to be higher, and I understand that. Um, <laughs> I think maybe the reason it's not quite as high is it is it is super heavy. And yeah. So yeah. Even though I, I I cherish that as we know by now uh, in a lot of the records, it's almost going to be a little too heavy for me to put above some of some of the uh, eight albums that remain. I'm struck by one of the things I heard lyrically as we're listening to these tracks. Obviously, Fuck You Like an Animal, some of those other, I mean, they just kind of punch you in the face. But there's a moment you played where he says, I want to do something that matters. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it feels like that's that's the nucleus or the that's what's underneath all of the rage and all of the self-loathing and the, the anger, obviously, the aggression, the violence that you hear in here is someone who's struggling. Yes. As I'm listening to this and listening to you talk, it strikes me as so much more of a relevant piece today, considering that all the things we see in the news, school shootings, for example, come to mind but also just people struggling with mental health after going through a right, pandemic right. for a couple of years. For me personally, it, it, this is not something I could really listen to and be as immersed in it as you, yeah. right? The weight of it is a little much for me, and what I want in my listening is, is different emotions, but I'm struck by how you connected with it given what he's exploring here and the importance of it. That, that I find fascinating and that it has stayed with you. It's, it's brilliant in its own right, but man, it's a hard listen for me. Yeah, it's great that he had this creative outlet and this creative ability because he really fits the profile of, you know, a school shooter. I mean, right, right. The, the kids that shot up Columbine like this album. Yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't have uh, the creative ability to do something like this because, right. you know, we, we, we talked about the show um, Song Exploder. On Netflix. They had one on Losing My Religion, which was your last pick we yeah. just talked about. Yeah. And they also had one on, the, on this last song, Hurt. Um, oh, really? But talking about the pain and what he was going through when he wrote and performed Hurt. You know, I commend you for this choice and, and I think shining a, a spotlight, if you will, on, on the importance of this particular piece of work. It has proven in the, in the, in the years that have, that have followed how important it is and it continues to be. So that's my number nine pick. 
the downward spiral from Trent Reznor's Nine Inch Nails from 1994. Up next for me, the album many critics over the years have called the Beatles' best work. It was a major step outside the lines of their early stuff and into experimentation. From 1966, it's Revolver. That's the opening track, Taxman, from the Beatles' critically acclaimed seventh studio album, which drummer Ringo Starr called Rubber Soul Part Two. At this point in their career, live performances were a thing of the past for the Beatles, and they had transitioned into exploring the full range of innovation that could be realized in a studio. Revolver explores an impressive range of new sounds, starting with the second track, a classic that stands alone in Beatles history. That's the incomparable Eleanor Rigby, released as a double A side single, along with another track, Yellow Submarine, which we'll talk about in a minute. Those were the only two songs off this amazing album that were released as singles. Eleanor Rigby has just two elements the vocals, Paul McCartney on lead, and then harmony from John Lennon and George Harrison. And then the musical backing of a string octet, four studio musicians on violin, two on the cello, and two on viola. George Harrison called Revolver and before it Rubber Soul parts one and two of the same phase of the Beatles, saying both were very enjoyable and pleasant to make. Ringo Starr said the songs were now more interesting, being driven by experimentation. This is Harrison's Love to You with the unmistakable introduction using the sitar. He first introduced the instrument on Norwegian Wood from Rubber Soul, and now Love to You is the first Beatles tune to fully reflect the influence of Indian classical music. Producer George Martin, often called the Fifth Beatle, recalled that during the Revolver sessions, the musical ideas from the band were, quote, more potent. And unlike in past sessions, the band members were now telling Martin what they wanted and were also pressing him for more ideas. I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find there. Revolver, from my perspective, is the sound of the Beatles continuing an exciting transition, leaving behind Beatlemania and settling into a phase where they are exploring and creating new music without the burden of being the four mop tops and having to produce radio-friendly hits like She Loves You, I Want to Hold Your Hand, Can't Buy Me Love, or Help. Okay, now, true confession time. This is actually the song, I'm somewhat embarrassed to say, that first got me into this amazing album. 
Yellow Submarine, no question about it, is a children's song. With Ringo, of course, on the lead vocals, it went to number one in England and several other countries, and it topped out at number two here in the U.S. As a very little kid, I was introduced to rock music and specifically the Beatles by my oldest sister, who was an official Beatlemaniac. She even had an official fan club membership card. This is this true story. I can vividly remember being in preschool, age four, and we would have these little breaks during the day where we would go out and ride tricycles around in a courtyard. And there I am singing, we all live in a yellow submarine at the top of my lungs. I'm not making this up. Why would I? So this song, sadly, was my entry point for Revolver. And I think a big factor in really latching onto this uh, record was wanting to hear Yellow Submarine over and over when I was a little guy. So this album really got drilled into my consciousness very early in life, and that is a big reason why it's so high on my list. So Jeff, when the Beatles collection was first released on CD in about 1987, I quickly added them to my personal collection and Revolver was one of the first ones I bought. And it was then that I listened to it repeatedly as an entire album. You know, when I was little, it was pretty much just side one. And this song, I just remember being so captivated by Tomorrow Never Knows by John Lennon. His sort of open exploration of using psychedelic drugs. I mean, a song that he, he wrote based on using LSD it's actually the first track that was recorded for Revolver, so it really sets an amazing tone. I mean, it's, it's the closer on the record, but it, if you think about it in terms of producing the record, this is where Lennon sets the bar in terms of we're going to make an experimental kind of album. It's just such an important moment in their lifespan as a band. Oh yeah, it's probably my favorite song on the album. I, I really like it a lot. You kind of surprised me on this. I guess this would be your number three, but actually uh, Abbey Road is your number three. Yeah. This is your number nine. So I missed again. But in any case, yes, this is a fantastic album, a fantastic pick. I know it's sometimes, I know it's at least one list been called the greatest album of all time. Yeah. For some reason, I got more into Rubber Soul than this one. Uh-huh. I could see so that. So I just know that album better than I do this one. But to me, they're very similar. They both start with R, so you, know, you remember them that way. So. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful album. And yes, I, I, I don't know what list it was. I'm sure it was Rolling Stone probably, but I do remember a, a time in history where this sat atop of the list. So for me, at number nine from 1966, Revolver from the Beatles. Let's check in with Ernie on Sesame Street. Hey, Bond. Hey, who? You. Hey, me? Yeah. Come here. What? Come here. What? You look like someone who'd be interested in a bargain. A bargain? Yeah. Why, uh, sure, why not? Are, are, are you a salesman? Right. Oh. What do you sell? Eights. Eights? Like the number eight? Shh. Like, like, like the number eight? Right. Oh, that's kind of a weird thing to be selling. So we've talked a lot about Queen on this show. Each of us have included two of their albums on our list thus far, even though you have to count Kevin's woeful choice of their greatest hits compilation in that. When we were in junior high, Another One Bites the Dust was one of the biggest hits of our junior high school years. You mean when we were in junior high? <laughs> yes, I mean, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> and that was after We Are the Champions and Bicycle Race had previously dominated radio for several months each. So to me, in the early 80s, Queen was about some mega-hit singles that crowded themselves into the mix with Michael Jackson, Joan Jett, and the Culture Club. 
<laughs> wow. <laughs> That's a room. But it would not be until 1985 or so that I discovered the true greatness of what we all now know to be one of the greatest bands in rock history. The reason this album reaches my top 10, however, is its brazen eclecticness. This is A Night at the Opera from 1975, their fourth studio album, and to me and many others, their greatest work. This is the opening track, Death on Two Legs, and it telegraphs the heavier aspects of the album to follow. But on track two, we get the full effect of this record's eclectic nature. That's right, this was equal parts 70s anthemic rock and 20s music hall throwbacks. And as if to stop rock fans from ripping the needle off the vinyl, this ditty is only about a minute long, and the third track brings back the noise. This is my favorite track. It's stomping peeing from a man to his automobile. I'm in love with my car. Such a clean machine. Kevin, I did wash my car today while this was playing in my earbuds. <laughs> my Tesla doesn't have pistons or a roll bar, but when I drive it, I do enjoy the lack of run-of-the-mill talk jive. <laughs> That's actually drummer Roger Taylor singing. He also wrote this song. Of the 12 tracks here, Taylor sings on this one, guitarist Brian May sings on two, and Freddie Mercury sings on the rest. Bassist John Deacon does not sing, but he did write this, the number four track. You're My Best Friend was the second single released on this album, and it reached number 16 in the U.S. But the first single reached number nine in 1975 and just became more and more famous over the years. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? In fact, it even bested itself, reaching number two when re-released in 1992 following Mercury's death. I have to admit I wasn't really too aware of this song until I got into this full album. At almost six minutes, it was longer than most singles released in the 70s, so perhaps the stations I listened to as a kid skipped it in favor of You're My Best Friend. But it really is an oddity in the pantheon of classic rock, and of course forever immortalized in the beginning of the Wayne's World movie from 1992. That head-banging scene in Wayne's powder blue AMC Pacer brought new life to the song, by 92, even classic rock stations had stopped playing the tune, but it blew up again. I see a little silhouette of a man. Scaramouche, Scaramouche, will you do the bandango? Thunderbolt and lightning, very, very frightening me. Galileo, 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 Galileo And maybe the best part was Wayne himself, Mike Myers, playing a record exec in the movie Bohemian Rhapsody and being sharply opposed to releasing this song as a single, saying that it is not a song that, quote, teenagers can crank up the volume in their car and bang their heads to. 
Kevin, this album never grows old for me. Its twists and turns can still be surprising, even though I know it all by heart. It definitely established him as one of the greatest rock acts, and when discovering early Queen in retrospect, it definitely stands out above the rest as an intricate and dynamic work of art. So many thoughts on this record, and so many places we can go. Up to this very moment, it has remained this sort of in the distance, man, I really want to listen to that someday. You know, and I, I'm hopefully I'm a little bit closer to sitting down with it and just taking it all in. Another point, you mentioned You're My Best Friend, a song that performed, I think, very well for them. Maybe their first really high-performing uh, song on the pop charts and written by bassist John Deacon, who's maybe the least known member of the band. But along with uh, that song and, and also another one, Bites the Dust, you got to give the guy props. He wrote two of their greatest tunes, and he's kind of the least known member of the band. I believe at the time, this was considered the most expensive album ever made. And I think probably drove the record execs batshit because the product that came out just sounded so odd and different. Finding this album and just saying, wow, this is strange. I mean, the second song being Lazing on a Sunday Afternoon is just right. like, this is not rock and roll. But it's like, right. it just comes together as a beautiful rock album. And, you know, I just I have to stop myself from featuring basically every song in the album here. Uh -huh. And I won't. But I did want to mention this other one called 39, as in the year 39. It's actually a science fiction story written by men who, besides being one of rock's greatest guitarists, is also an astrophysicist. Yeah, right. In the year of 39, assemble here the volunteers In the days when lands are And it's about a traveler who leaves Earth in the year 39 hmm. and comes back 100 years later in the year 39 only to discover that everyone he knew and loved is dead because he traveled at the speed of light and only aged by a year. It's really kind of wistful and melancholy as well, but it's just an example of uh, the diversity uh, of sound and uh, ideas this album represents. Never, back, never fear, never cry. Don't you hear my call? Though you're many years away. I missed this by two. Technically, I had it as a top ten for you, but I had it at number ten. So, okay. minor credit. It's number eight, so pretty close. It, it occurs to me that this is the album that you share with somebody that you want to introduce to Queen sort of with the caveat of this is a band that had big balls. <laughs> they knew how good they were and they were willing to do this and basically thumb their nose at the industry and they were right. Yep. My number eight choice, Queen, A Night at the Opera from 1975. Okay, Jeff, number eight for me. Underneath my voice here, this is literally the sound of my musical world at age 12 just opening up into a broader landscape. It's one of the great side one track ones, if you ask me. This is Don't Stand So Close To Me, and the album is Zenyatta Mandata, the police's third studio release from October of 1980. Young teacher, the subject of schoolgirl fantasy. And I knew it was that important to you, and that's why I guess this is your number one. Yes, you were close. <laughs> you get credit for hitting the top ten. So it was 1980, I was 12, 
And this album came along for me at the perfect time. It came out in the fall of 1980. Don't Stand So Close To Me was the first single, and that was followed by this next track, which also was a hit, the oddly titled Do 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 Da 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 Da. Okay, so I'm not really going to get into what a lot of superlatives about the performance of this album. This this little segment here is just more, I guess, personal. So it's 1980. I'm 12 years old. I'm in seventh grade. I heard both the hit songs on the radio, and I thought, I like this. But at the time, I didn't really give any thought to buying the album until, fast forward, late spring of 1981, and one of my sisters had come home from college in Southern California with a bunch of new albums in her collection. And, of course, coming back from, in this case, University of Cal Santa Barbara, coming back to Oregon, you know, Hick, Oregon, from a place where there was this kind of real music scene, what were the new additions to the album collection? And I'm pretty sure I put it on the stereo at home because I wanted to hear Don't Stand So Close To Me, track one, and then the do-do-do is like track six or seven. So, again, you have to listen and, and really, you know, stay with it to hear, to hear both of these songs. And it was, you know, on the, probably the very first time I listened to it, I was like, I was just blown away by how much more was there waiting for me like this one. That's the beginning of track two, Driven to Tears, with the one-of-a-kind percussion stylings of the great Stuart Copeland. Even in this moment right now, just sharing this, I could still just feel what that felt like to listen to that and how excited I was at 12. Like, wow, what have I discovered? You know, back then, Jeff, I don't know if it was this way for you, but it was it was cool to, to you know, own albums, right? They were sort of like, I guess... Uh, John Cusack in uh, um, High Fidelity calls them calls things like that fetish properties, right? So I, I remember just aspiring to have my own album collection because my siblings all had them. And they were like these little trophies, you know, that you would have in your in, in your stack, you know. But, you know, we didn't have portability back then. So you had your record player, you could listen at home, but then you had to have this way to take the songs with you. So I don't know about you, but... I was always caught up in this mythology, which actually I don't know if it was a mythology. I think it was probably true that the store-bought white cassettes were basically a piece of shit, right? Yeah. The true audio files would tell you, okay, you know, the, the, the vinyl is the great sound, but you can get close to that if you record that on the high quality cassette. Yep, that, that so, was that was my entire okay. ch- my okay. entire childhood, okay. right? <laughs> so here I go. Now I now I, I you know at that point I should have bought stock in Maxell because I just started yeah. buying Maxell cassettes. That was the one. Oh yeah, that's the yep. high quality. So not only did I find this holy grail kind of album, but I had to find this way to listen to it. So happening at the same time i'm laser focused on acquiring this means of playing my growing collection of tapes the boom box yeah. had to have the boom box and so you know we had these stores called jaffco in the portland area and they had this beautiful sony boom box two speakers it just and it was this kind of silver color and i just was so enchanted by it 
I just had to find a way to buy that and you know and, and start my little collection and my means of playing my music. So got a summer paper route and started you know taking Max bottles to the store and recycling newspapers so I could buy this boombox and then start this whole movement that really spanned my teenage years of listening <laughs> to music. And it all started with Zenyatta Mandana. I had had a couple albums before that. I think I bought The Game and um, from Queen and Michael Jackson's Off the Wall and Glass Houses from Billy Joel. But when I got this one, it was a real game changer. That's so great because I had a uh, Silver Technics boombox, nice. a really solid one. They don't they, like they stopped making the really solid, good ones in the late '80s right. and the '90s. They started making cheaper ones, but I had a really solid one with all the input <laughs> right. ports right. that I could right. record to and from. Oh, and yeah. that was I, that. This thing just cranked right. too. And did it have a little bar you could carry it? Yeah, around? Well, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. A bar, and it was like part of my me and my high school friends. Like high school legend is that right. boombox, right? Yeah. All of this is a way of saying that Zenyatta Mandata was not only that an en- entry point into a larger world, I guess, and specifically, really, we're talking about new wave music at the time. But, you know, the other thing about this album, it was, it was the first time I could claim to my friends that this I had discovered a great album. I mean, yes, my sister had owned it, but in terms of my circle of friends... This was my discovery and sort of my contribution to the conversation. It kind of represents a moment of ascension, you know, for a 12-year-old, right? A way to be cool, but also kind of to have some street cred among your buddies. Yeah. To this day, this track right here, Canary in a Coal Mine, just absolutely fantastic. Uh, Just a short little song, but I think also captures just the great diversity of the police, the kind of undertones of reggae, but then the the mix, mix, mixing in of some jazz elements. It's, it's fantastic. So wanted to include this one because it's basically an instrumental. I mean, they sing like one line over and over again, but I never get tired of listening to this because it's just kind of the guys like plugging in the amps hitting record on the tapes and just kind of riffing and just going with a groove and seeing where it takes them. It's called Voices Inside My Head. So Jeff, I think the rightful credit goes to bands like Talking Heads, Blondie, and very much so The Police as the bands that really launched and helped sort of popularize New Wave in the early 80s. I mean, you know, you say New Wave and eventually you start thinking about the Human League and, you know, and the Go-Go's. But, but I think those three based on what I've read at least, all kind of broke through playing CBGBs in New York and, and, you know, were this transition from punk to something different. And I I can appreciate it more now. I certainly didn't as much then. But The Police, obviously, if you listen to this podcast, you know I have great affection for this band. But Zenyatta Mandata is is really their breakthrough record. I mentioned before, it's their third studio album. Number five was Synchronicity. That was their masterpiece. And they bowed out after that. But this is really the one that helped break them out worldwide and gave a much broader audience this unprecedented blend of rock, punk, pop, reggae, and world music. Yes, as you mentioned, we've well established your love for the police in this podcast, and we've also established early on that your disdain for my lack of police on this (laughs) list. But uh, to be clear, although none of their albums quite could make my top 100 i do like a lot of them and this is probably one of my favorites along with ghost of the machine and outlandish day more 
So I have uh, the utmost respect for the police and for your placement on this list, knowing for a long time that they would be in your top ten. I thought this one was going to be your number one. I thought it, I thought because of all the stuff you just said mm-hmm. that maybe it should be your number one. But uh, who am I? <laughs> who am I to make the rules? Well, if we've learned anything from watching Rolling Stone rank these lists, you know, the you do one and then you come back a few years later and. All these other factors are now in play, so you know, in five years, maybe this is number one. I don't know, but yeah. it. But that, that's a great story about how this album infected you. More yeah, or less. yeah. I mean, I was listening, thinking there was a lot of music like that for me, but not really one album that I could really tell that same story with. So it was really yeah. cool. To hear. Yeah, it was a game changer for yeah. sure. Yeah, and so, and then, and the nice thing is what it. You know, kind of opened the door for now. Suddenly, I'm intrigued by bands like the Pretenders or the Kinks or the Go Go's or even you know some of the more like MTV niche bands like Split Ends. Remember some oh, of yeah. those groups? Yeah. You know, so the Police really served that, and this record specifically really served that purpose for me as well. So that's my number eight from 1980, Zenyata Mandata from the Police. Number seven. All right, we move on to number seven. So we all know the iconic opening to Smells Like Teen Spirit, mm-hmm. the opening track for Nirvana's Nevermind. But to anyone that lived through the early 90s explosion of grunge, the opening licks of this song have equal resonance. And the sky was made of All the stars are just like little fish. The song is Violet from the album Kevin Guest would be my number one. Damn. Damn it! <laughs> Live through this by whole. You should learn how to say no! It was released on April 12, 1994, seven days after the death of Kurt Cobain, singer Courtney Love's husband. It is my number seven. With this song and the album that follows, lead singer Courtney Love and Hole established themselves as one of the best bands to co-op the Nirvana sound. Love and guitarist Eric Erlinson wrote almost every track here, and the themes of motherhood and female victimization make this the strongest female grunge entry of the 90s. Violet is actually inspired by Courtney Love's tumultuous relationship with Smashing Pumpkins' Billy Corgan whom she dated in 1990. Like many of the songs here, it alternates between softly sung verses and harsher, often screeching choruses. That's really part of what hooks me on every song here. I am the girl you know can't look you in the eye. This was Hole's second album after their critically praised but rather weakly selling Pretty on the Inside from 1991. Both the drummer and bassist had been replaced, and with that new rhythm section, Hole evolved into a more accessible melodic band. Courtney Love was so impressed with her husband Kurt Cobain and blown away by the brilliance of Nevermind that she pushed herself to try to match him. About the experience of writing this album, Love said, I had heard five songs from Nevermind and I was so jealous of those songs that I had to try to top them. I could not believe that somebody I knew, somebody from our underground, had written a batch of songs so fiercely great. This is the third song, Plump, my favorite track in the album. 
Kevin Hole is my fourth top concert experience in this episode. Okay. I usually consider it my number one concert experience. I saw Hole play the Hollywood Palladium on my birthday in 1994. I went alone, got straight <laughs> into the mosh pit, and saw the entire show from about 10 feet away from the band. And you know when you go to a concert of a band you love and you try to predict what they'll open with? Of course. Well, I did, and I got it right. It was this <laughs> song, Plump, and I think it's probably one of the reasons I love this song so much. Something I only learned when I prepared for this episode is that this song, Asking For It, according to Wikipedia, quote, was inspired by an occurrence at a 1991 concert when Hole was touring with Mudhoney, in which Love was assaulted and had her clothes ripped off while crowd surfing, leaving her entirely naked. And that's pretty interesting to me because in that mosh pit I was in, Courtney crowd surfed a lot, and every time she did, more of her clothes got ripped off. And by the wow. last few songs, she was entirely naked, save for a pair of silk lacy panties. Oh my god. Even then, she would still sage dive into a sea of gropy men. Now, now, before you judge, <laughs> I'm pretty sure she was higher than a kite. But she didn't seem to care about being assaulted this time. Wow. And for the record, I was a good boy. Uh, her naked body was a past over my head several times but I always assisted by grabbing her arms or her legs and not where so many of the other hands were gathered. Oh my god. I had never experienced anything like that and haven't since. It is interesting now to hear though that I figure it was earlier in her career they were opening for my dummy probably something she wasn't expecting but yeah. perhaps by the time she was a lead artist she didn't care anymore wow because i can tell you she came out after the show completely naked still holding baby francis bean oh my showing goodness. her young toddler how to flip off the audience oh my goodness This is Doll Parts, one of their most popular songs, and Love wrote it about her insecurity of Cobain's romantic interest in her. What propels this album so high for me is its consistent greatness. That may sound trite, but it's just true for me. I don't just like every song here, I love every song here. Even tracks that would be considered filler just tear it up. This is Gutless, the second to last track. I'd say it's a highlight, but to me, they all are. The online database All Music puts it best. Live Through This rarely sounds raw because of the shiny production and the carefully considered dynamics. Despite this flaw, the album retains power because it is one of the few records patterned on Nevermind that gets the formula right, with a set of gripping hooks and melodies that retain their power even if they follow the predictable grunge pattern. Kevin, yes, this album is at number seven. Yeah. While Nevermind was 17. And I could probably attribute that to Nevermind and maybe Pearl Jam's 10 being overplayed everywhere so much that I was happy to pop in this album and Liz Fair and Nine Inch Nail in my car instead. Okay, so many questions. Number one, in the mosh pit. 
Are you wearing your glasses? I uh, I believe I put in contacts for that. Yeah, trip. I was going to say. I don't I know how to, you could I, possibly I've, survive I've that. worn glasses since college, but I would actually put in contacts for some things like skiing and, yes, concert going. Yeah, I was going to say, that's yeah. a full contact sport in yeah, there. Yeah, absolutely. No, you get kicked in the face all the time by body pass kids wearing Doc Martens. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, okay, so question number two, how could this not be, I mean, it's weird. Okay, seven is really high on your list. But it's, as you're reciting all that you just so eloquently recited, I thought to myself, if someone had come in and heard this and didn't hear the beginning where they knew the position, this could easily pass for your number one, the way you're gushing about all of it. Sure. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, you've said it yourself. It's like the margins up between these albums are yeah. very tight. No, I feel incredibly validated yeah. now listening to you going, okay, I wasn't that far off. <laughs> it still sucks that I... I'm six positions away. Uh, man, if I had just guessed as number one, I could just you know, know. walk I, tall I, and proud. We, we revealed that I screwed up my guess at your number one. You screwed up your guess at my number well, one. Well, okay. Well, I went to school. Oh. Well, I went to school. So this is the last track. Uh, originally, they had a different song called Rockstar for this slot. Well, I went to school in Olympia. But they decided at the last minute to use this song called Olympia. What do you do with a revolution? Which, having grown up in Washington, was a nice reminder that, like Nirvana, Cole is from Seattle area. In any case, the printing of the album artwork had already been done, so this song is now labeled Rockstar and has been named such ever since. It's a great ending, really. She's wailing against conformity of the riot girl scene of Evergreen State College in Olympia. <laughs> The last thing I want to say about this album is after its release, there were those who speculated that Kurt Cobain really wrote this album. Uh huh. And Hole and Courtney were just writing his coattails. Of that, Courtney said, I wanted to be better than Kurt. I was really competing with Kurt. And that's why it always offends me when people say, oh, he wrote Live Through This. I'd be proud as hell to say that he wrote something on it, but I wouldn't let him. It was too Yoko Ono for me. It's like, <laughs> no fucking way, man. I've got a good band. I don't fucking need your help. Wow. That's my number seven. Whole Live Through This from 1994. All right. And for number seven on my list, this is the second of two that Jeff and I have in common for our final 13. And from 1977, this is Rumors from Fleetwood Mac. And not only do we both have it, but we are both extremely close. <laughs> you guessed correctly, it is my number six. Yes. <laughs> now, is that the only one I've gotten so far that's in the exact position? No, you got MIA. Too. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. sweet. And I guess rumors would be your number 13, so. Ah, uh, okay, okay. <laughs> Of course, this record is known for the big hits, right? Dreams, Don't Stop, You Make Love and Fun, Go Your Own Way. But for me, it's one of those where even though side one, track one, the opening notes you hear isn't a hit song, it definitely resonates because I've listened to this album so much that secondhand news is like, great, that's just such a great beginning to I mean, a yeah, classic that's the album. Thing, that's the thing about great albums, and especially this one, is that just every song works. I know. And that's what they wanted to do as well. Right. They, they right. wanted to make every song like it could be a single. And I admire this because their previous uh, self-titled album, 
started with Monday morning, mm-hmm. not a hit either, mm-hmm. but they both just work. Right. And the thing I didn't know about this song, though, is actually inspired by the Bee Gees. Really? Inspired by the Bee Gees' jive talking. I can see that. Yeah, there's a little bit of that, especially that, the way Lindsay's playing the guitar, for sure. It's just a great rocking song to start, because yep. right after it, we get into... Possibly one of the greatest rock songs of all time. Right. Yeah, went to number one on the charts, on the top 40 charts. And I think just the album works so much better starting with that banger. Yeah, right. Before going into the biggest hit. Absolutely. This is Dreams with Stevie Nicks on vocals. You know, another thing I would say, just going back to Lindsey Buckingham again, that was another thing that really struck me when I listened to this album again in preparation for this is what an important piece of that band Lindsey Buckingham was. I mean, he he gets bashed a lot these days, you know, as the as sort of the the bad seed, I guess. Yeah, I'm the guest that never gets time on what's up with that. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, Bill Hader sort of the <laughs> use that as a stepping stone but I, I, I think it's it's an important part of their story about how important he was and Stevie absolutely was too yeah and it's too. interesting because you have Mick uh, Fleetwood and uh, John McVie having been at this band from the start and going through so many different band members before they got to right. Lindsay and Stevie So when Lindsay comes in and he's just such a driving force, perfectionist, yeah, really dictating a lot about how these sessions go, right, caused a lot of tension. Yeah, this yes. album they were definitely drugged out most of the time. Right, they had all just broken up with each other. John McVie had divorced his wife, right. Christine McVie, Stevie and, and Lindsay were on the rocks, and Mick Fleetwood discovered that his wife was having an affair with his best friend. Right. All this stuff was roiling this band, and right. they were able to crank out this masterpiece. Absolutely, and and I, I've seen some some documentaries that touch on this, that further tension that was created by Buckingham in the studio because of his insistence on getting the sound just right, and I think it was John McVie in particular who butted heads with him repeatedly. Yeah. And here we get another another great Lindsay track, I think. Mm-hmm. Never going back again. This is one of my favorites on the album. Yeah. But I mean, it's hard again. Like I said on my last album, it's hard to pick a favorite here. But well, what you so get, great what you get here too is the is the pick playing style of guitar. And what I mean by that is picking with the fingers. Mm-hmm. You know, not not using a guitar pick. And he's really an underrated guitar player, I think, because yeah, yeah. what he's doing here on this song is not easy to do. The way he's playing guitar on this song. I agree. This is a big. This song's a big highlight on this album for me too. Funny side story. This is the only. <laughs> I wanted to note this. This is the only album in the entire list of mine that I was introduced to and Im- got immersed in through an eight-track tape. Oh, eight track. I, I never, I never experienced eight track. We had uh, one of my siblings uh, bought her first car. It had an eight track player in it, and it came with a stack of eight tracks. This one was one of them. I think it was summer of probably '78 or '79. I listened to this album 25 times or something in that car, 
and and knew the hits like this one, you know, the 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 Bill Clinton anthem from 1992. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can vividly just remember really growing to like the the in-between songs you know there were the the hits were the highlights exactly but but there were these other ones that were so strong so good i I didn't know that about their quest to make this a record that had a hit all the way through and it did have four top 10 hits yes only dreams made it to number one it was the album of the year at the 1977 Grammys. It was a number one album, mm-hmm. and it was their second number one album after their eponymous one. Yep. And it is currently a number seven, just like you have it ranked yep. on the Rolling Stone Top 500 of all time. Very nice. Loving you isn't the right thing to do. So now we hear the, the track that is... Lindsay and Stevie talking to each other about the turbulence in their relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, the beat here was inspired by the Rolling Stone Street Fighting Man. Oh, sure. Another yeah. interesting trivia. Yeah, love it. <laughs> love it. They actually recorded the uh, whole album in a windowless studio in Sausalito, California. Wow. You can go your own way. The only song that was recorded elsewhere was Songbird. Like we talked about, they strive for a, what they call a no-filler album. Yeah. I think it's also part of the reason we can play every song here and not feel like we're overdoing it because right. everyone is worthy of hearing again. So now here's the here's the, probably the real showcase for Christine on the entire record, right? Absolutely. I admit this is one I probably skipped over when I first uh, became a fan of this album because I was younger and I was into the more right. fast-moving tracks. But now it's one I could never skip. It's just gorgeous. Yeah, beautiful song and her just I just I, I'm a huge fan of uh, Christine McVie's voice too. I've always really liked it. I, it kind of gets overshadowed by Stevie, but it's so sweet sounding. I just I've always really liked that. It's funny, too, because when you hear Christine talk and do interviews, she has a much deeper voice, yeah. right? I mean, I always thought, well, she probably smokes. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's a cigarette-enhanced vocal. But It's boy, also it's, funny. It's also that thing where their British accents just don't seem to come right, across. Right, right. Yes, you don't hear it at all. It's interesting to listen to this and think, okay, there's a, the, she has a sweet quality but a, a really vulnerable undertone to her vocals, too. It's... I was captivated by her voice on Say You Love Me from the previous album. But this this is just such a wonderful... You envision her on stage with a single spotlight you know, right. on her singing this. And this was not a single, but we will get to her single in a couple moments. But then we flip the record over. <laughs> or the cassette over. Yes. Decide to side two. Oh boy. And this was, and probably still is, my favorite song in this album. I was obsessed with this song when I got into this album first. Yeah. I just think it's great. It's actually the only song in the album that all five band members had a hand in writing. Mm. They all kind of worked together on this one. It's yeah. called The Chain.
Now, is this not the blending of two pieces that they were working on? I always thought that that was... Yeah, actually, it was more than two songs, and that's one of the reasons that all five members are accredited, is they brought together elements from many songs. Okay. There was a uh, concert taped at the LA Forum in 1982 that was turned into an HBO special mm. in the early 80s that I recorded on VHS and watched <laughs> over and over and over again. Well, and it was amazing because, first of all, I had a huge crush on Stevie Nicks. <laughs> but also, I loved this concert, and one of the best parts was Mick Fleetwood had a bodysuit that had pads on it that were drums. Oh, so wow. at one point, and I believe it's during the chain, he stepped out in fr uh, on front of the stage and played his body, <laughs> played a drum solo on his body. And here we have the fourth hit, which is also the second Christine McVie vocal mm -hmm. lead on the album. Mm -hmm. At times, I also feel this is my favorite song. Sure. And this was the this was the fourth released single. It got a lot of radio airplay in '78, and it reminds me of just the lasting power of this record. I mean, it, it has this historical dominance, and it's it, one number I wrote I read recently that it was it sold at least 40 million copies. It's reached diamond status in in multiple countries, but it was at a status in 77 78 that was only eclipsed later by Saturday Night Fever. In other oh, words, wow. it was it was the the sun in the universe, right? And then Saturday Night Fever kind of pushed it aside, but it held that really sacred spot for so many months. So three songs left. This is I don't want to know which I had a cassette of this album was the first thing I had. You had the 8-track, I had the cassette. Yeah. And this was actually switched with secondhand news. This was the first song on the album. Really? And, you know, I couldn't find that anywhere when I researched it huh. uh, recently. But what I did is I looked at, like, cassettes for sale on eBay. And sure enough, whenever I found a cassette for sale, you look at the label and this song is first. And I don't know if it was Weird. all cassette releases or some, but I actually added to the Wikipedia page a note <laughs> that on some cassette releases, these two songs were switched. And so I always thought of this song as being the beginning of the album. And, I, and, and to be honest, it kind of works the same way Secondhand News does, because neither were singles, right. but the, both of them have a pretty good uh, oh, yeah. moving beat to start right. an album. Right. Yeah. And, and heavy Lindsay influence, obviously. But that's interesting. Yeah. I you have that experience of having heard it that way so yeah. it makes more sense to you it makes zero sense to me <laughs> exactly, right yeah. i mean secondhand news is the compute. beginning of the right yeah exactly it does not compute funny and the song was actually uh, composed by buckingham and nicks before they were with food mac aha in 1974 but right. they brought it forward to this album and here we have the penultimate song another christine mcvee a beautiful song called oh daddy a bit of a reference to Mick Fleetwood, who the band members would often call Daddy. Oh, Daddy, you know you make me cry. The uh, album also actually re-entered the charts at number 11 in 2011. Really? Because the TV show Glee did a whole episode based oh my on gosh. their album. Wow. Yeah. And then in 2020, yeah. if you remember during the pandemic, um, it reached top 10 again after TikTok 
guy on a skateboard featured the song Dreams, and it just went so viral. Yeah, I did. I and then Dreams that. got to be a big hit again. Crazy stuff. But I, mean, I like that. The way oh, an yeah. album can last. Right. For no, the, I like. I like that pieces of its legacy. Legacy, you know, play out like that. Going through this track by track, it, it, it strikes me that. This album was such a great accomplishment for this band. It was so popular and such a masterpiece. It's one of the you know landmark rock albums of all time. It's interesting to me how how they were still able to to continue on and find success through some of the subsequent albums. You're a big fan of Tusk. I, I've not warmed to that one yet, <laughs> but uh, Mirage did very well. Mm-hmm. Um, Tango in the Night, I thought, did very well. Mirage, I believe, I got into first on a cassette before I got into Rumors. And uh, Tango in the Night, which came out when we were in college, mm-hmm. also a great record. Yeah, and in both cases, like we talked about with Moving Pictures and Rush, I mean, it, this, this is at the very top of the mountain yeah. in terms of the, the, the achievements of this band. But so often you you have heard stories in rock music over the years of the great album and then the band just never being able to live up to it again yeah yeah and the legacy of this record is not that it it was it was a magnificent achievement but it wasn't the beginning and or end of the band yeah. it was just a step along the way And here we have the last track on the album, Stevie Nicks singing Gold Dust Woman. I mean, I think a lot of people thought that, and I and we both agreed too, we ranked it well, Fleetwood Mac's eponymous album before this one was great and something hard to top, but they did it with this. That one, which I believe was the stated goal, right? Yeah. They, they, were, they made that album with uh, Lindsay and, and Stevie joining the fold, did incredibly well. And, and a little bit like we talked about with Michael Jackson, how do you with off the wall and then thriller how do you right. top yourself how do and you and we talked about uh, when we covered michael jackson we also talked about will any album ever outsell it again yeah. and i think the answer is no because music isn't distributed in the same way again but you could probably say some things about rumors too will any album ever be as great as rumors in the way rumors was great did she make you cry make you break Yeah, probably not. And probably not. I mean, it's just, it's influenced so many. I mean, like Lord, who is, mm-hmm. you know, only in her early 20s now, she's called this the perfect record. Yeah. And when you when you hear an artist as talented as her say something like that, you, you have to take note. And, yeah. and kind of how I feel about Hole, the last album, being perfect in a different way than this was. This was a perfect record, but also loved by so many more than any grunge album ever was. Even, even never mind. I mean, right. you'll have heavy metal artists who love rumors, right? And you'll right. have bubblegum pop artists who learned their trade from right. rumors, right? Know? Well, I think the other thing you could say about it is it stands by itself as not only a great album, but it's distinct in its sound. You know, we've talked about another landmark album like Led Zeppelin IV or, or Dark Side of the Moon. The Mac is its own sound, right? They're just. I think that's one of the one of the things you have to nod to to their greatness is they they found their own space. Nobody else sounds like them. They did it better than everybody else. So Fleetwood Mac rumors my number six choice. Kevin's number seven choice. 
And that wraps up the episode. So now we've gotten up to our number six. We know my number six is Fleetwood Mac Rumors. Your number three is Abbey Road. Right. But we do not yet know the other five of each of our lists. Right. Including each of ours one and two. Yep. So that'll be in the final episode. As far as uh, us guessing each other's positions, let me uh, do a little uh, calculations here. Let's figure out to do that. All right. So, Kevin, you kicked my ass. <laughs> Pure luck. <laughs> if you score uh, as, as to how far away you got each guess from its actual position, you got 21 and I got 36. The lower number is better. Right. So now we have to, to throw in the last five picks that we don't know of each other and guess again before the last episode. Okay. All right. So back to the hopper. So you know my number six. I know your number three, but you don't know the order of the rest. So I have a feeling that could be easier for you. I don't know if it's going to be easier for me. I don't know. I, was, I whiffed so badly on whole. I just <laughs> thought, I, I well, don't know. Yeah, the same I did with Zenyatta. I whiffed. So. And once again, it's your last chance to call the pick line and be featured in our final Pick 100 episode. So dial 1-484-374-2534 and leave a message telling us some of your favorite albums. Check us out on social media, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at the pickcast is the username for all of those music for the pick by audio nautics thanks for listening everybody from portland oregon i'm kevin toon and i'm jeff payne see you on the last and final episode of the pick 100